I'll talk about tactical decisions in our portfolios, and then I'll talk about portfolio construction considerations. But tactically, on valuations, they seem rich to me with the S&P 500 at 18 price earnings ratio. Earnings expectations are optimistic. The expectation is that U.S. corporate earnings will grow at 10% this year. We already have two quarters baked in. That's ambitious. It's a high bar. Inflation has most likely peaked, but it will be sticky. You could see inflation above 4% for a while, 12 to 18 months from here. On recession, I view a probability of recession in the U.S. at about 50% at the 12-month horizon. In Europe, at about 75%, the consumer is getting crushed in Europe with energy prices. And if you're in the bear camp, I'll give you some scary statistics that suggest history is not on our side when we think about recession risk. I'll give you four. Number one, out of the last 13 hiking cycles, 10 ended in a recession. Okay, if that doesn't scare you enough, let me give you another one. There's never been a quarter in history with inflation above 5% and unemployment below 4%, so high inflation, low unemployment, that wasn't followed by a recession within two years. And then the fourth one, or the third one, uh, to me is maybe the scariest. The Fed has never lowered inflation by 4% or more without triggering a recession. And the fourth one is the two stands yield curve. It's completely inverted in the US right now. That level of inversion has also signaled a recession historically. So here's ammunition for the bears from a historical perspective. We are going through massive COVID distortions. We need to think of the current environment quite differently. The labor market in the US is still quite strong, so the recession call is not as obvious as those historical bearish statistics will tell you. But here are some ammunitions for you if you want to make the bearish case. Sentiment in terms of positioning and broadly survey indicators is actually quite low. No one likes this recent rally of a month or a month and a half. Everybody's stocking it down. Speculators, specifically around futures positions, are massively short. That usually is actually, all else being equal, a bullish signal. It pays to be contrarian in markets. It pays to buy around the bottom. You don't need to perfectly time the bottom if you're willing to be brave. Those are my views on valuations, earnings, inflation, recession, and sentiment. When we put it all together strategically and tactically, we want to be invested. And as advisors, I know you often say that to your clients, stay invested, stay diversified. If I meet someone in an elevator, I'm on floor four, and they ask me what I think about investing, and I know they're getting off at floor six, I'm going to say stay invested, stay diversified. It's incredibly trite. But as advisors, you often need to remind your clients of that. And this is an environment where you do need to do that. 
Tactically, we are underweight stocks. When I say that, people ask me, since when? We entered the year underweight stocks. It's not a large underweight position, 2 3% on most of our portfolios. We're also underweight duration, underweight government bonds. We are in the process of closing that underweight position, going back to neutral, because broadly speaking, inflation risk is declining and recession risk is increasing, which means treasuries, government bonds, might, going forward, retake their role as diversifiers if we get a real growth shock. In terms of style and size, there are opportunities in terms of valuation to buy small cap stocks, value stocks, even despite the rally, near historically cheap levels, especially if you look at the range of valuation spreads for 10 to 30 years. Large cap growth stocks, are still in their 85th percentile in valuation range relative to value over the longer run. So when you put it all together and you add a bit of credit, because even though there's a lot of negative sentiment in the market, default risk is quite low because there's very little leverage in the economy, especially in corporations. And therefore, on a default adjusted basis, credit is a decent bet. We think better than equities. You can summarize our positioning as playing defense because we're underweight stocks, but playing aggressive defense. That's how we're positioned tactically. Let's talk about longer term portfolio construction. Here this week, I have quite a few clients and advisors asking me about strategic asset allocation. Because we're going through what you're talking about here today, a regime shift, we're going through a paradigm shift from low inflation, low inflation volatility to higher inflation volatility, from declining rates to rising rates. What does it mean for the role of treasuries? Is the 60-40 or the Australian version, the 70-30 portfolio dead? How do we modernize that portfolio? And here's an interesting question that I have for you as advisors. How many of you use portfolio optimization tools? Do you think they're useful in your SAA, strategic asset allocation portfolio construction? It's about 10%, 15% in this room. 15 years ago, I was at a conference. It was much more boring than this conference. It was purely quantitative research, so I was half asleep. But as I was about to fall asleep, the presenter was talking about innovations in portfolio optimization. As a well-respected presenter, Bernd Scherer, famous academic, he's also worked as a money manager. And all of a sudden, someone in the audience raised their hand and he clearly was a fundamental portfolio manager. And it got interesting because he said, look, all the forecasts you're making about returns, the exercise you just went through about the probabilities for the three scenario, all of this that you can put in an optimizer, you don't really know. It's junk. It's not good data. And the past won't repeat. And therefore, GIGO, have you ever heard the GIGO critique? Garbage in, garbage out. 
I always remember what the presenter said. He looked at the person asking the question right in the eye. The presenter was a bit jet lag, a bit irritated, and he said, if you don't think you can come up with expectations about the future, you shouldn't be in the investment business. And his point was philosophical, but when we invest, we make a call about the future. So to simply say GEIGO and dismiss all risk management portfolio optimization tools, I think is simplistic. Those tools don't replace judgment, but they complement judgment. You can use them. You can use different versions. You can crunch a lot of data that you can't do simply with judgment and experience. You can test your assumptions. And we use them in the process as a decision aid to understand cause and effect in portfolio construction decisions and understand scenarios better. But what about correlations? Are they stable? They're clearly not. Everyone knows that correlations tend to rise during market sell-offs. We've had the mother of all correlation anomalies between stocks and bonds this year. And they're highly non-symmetrical. Highly non-symmetrical. Um, if you look over the last 30 years at monthly data for hedge funds and stocks, and you carve out only the months during which stocks were rallying in their top 5% of the distribution. Good times. The correlation between stocks and hedge funds using the HFRI broad index of hedge funds is about minus 5%. Hedge funds are great diversifiers. If you do the same exercise, but carve out the months during which equity markets crashed, the bottom 5% of the distribution, recalculate the correlation between stocks and hedge funds, it's 80%. So there is a gigantic asymmetry. You'll find similar asymmetries with diversification disappearing on the downside, which we all know intuitively, but also being really, really, really good on the upside, which is when you actually don't want it. Between credit and stocks, between value and growth, between small and large, between Australian equities and non-Australian equities, and so on. So, to me, it's kind of like if you use the average correlation in your optimizer and your portfolio construction process to assess diversification, it's the same as saying I have my head in, in the oven and my, my head in the freezer, my feet in the oven, and my average body temperature is really good, really perfect. So the average diversification between asset classes is really an average of two extremes that will lead you to underestimate exposure to loss all else being equal. So you need to do regime-based correlation. You need to make a call, use probabilities like the one you're coming up with today to reweight your data so that you get a better estimate and also run stress tests. Last thing on strategic portfolio construction, are black swans real? We all know they are because we just went through a really unusual market. You know, the statistical probability that stocks would be down Let's start with 5% and that investment grade treasuries would be down 5% at the same time is actually quite low. And earlier this year was emailing one of our analysts saying, what's the statistical probability assuming a normal distribution? And he was saying, yeah, you know, once every 100 years. And then we went to minus 20% on stocks and minus 15% on bonds. 
this, given the correlation between the two asset classes, if you use simple, normal distribution-based statistical models, the probability that that would have happened, and it just did, is once every 300 million years. So clearly, the normal bell-shaped distribution that says that big losses, extreme moves, fat tails, which are the extremes, the tails of the distribution, are unlikely to occur are not the right models we should use in portfolio construction and risk management. And it really matters if you estimate those probabilities correctly or not. You can, you can play a sharp ratio pretty easily because a sharp ratio uses the volatility as the measure of risk. And the volatility underestimates those black swans, those fat tails. And it really matters. Andrew Lowe of MIT has a great paper he put out in 2001 about this. He built a strategy that doubled the Sharpe ratio of the S&P 500. He used data throughout the 90s. What was interesting about this strategy is that a monkey could do it. There was no investment skill, no foresight involved. It was a purely mechanical strategy and he doubled the sharp ratio in the simulation. He was selling out of the money put option, which looks great until markets crash and then the put is in the money, essentially selling insurance. For those of you who invest in carry-based strategies, liquid alts type that load up on credit risk, currency carry, you're selling insurance. That's okay, you can make money by selling insurance but you need the risk model and the portfolio construction to account for the probability of extreme losses in a way that's not captured by the Sharpe ratio. So you can juice a Sharpe ratio by selling puts, and that is a simple illustration I'm giving you to start thinking about portfolio construction in a way that's a little bit more tail aware that we, than we typically do. What does it mean for a typical model portfolio? Here's a model portfolio that is generic, it's a 60-40. If you modernize it for rising rates, for greater inflation risk, for a focus on downside risk, you end up in the current environment with only 12% traditional bonds. It's still sort of a 60-40, but there's 12% in absolute return alternatives. Selection of the strategies there matters a lot. You have a barbell between credit asset classes and long treasuries to hedge it out. That's a little bit different than traditional investment grade bonds. You have 10% risk managed equities, which embed direct tail risk hedging strategies. You have a separate sleeve for volatility risk premia. And there you go, you have a portfolio that's modernized for more of a rising rate environment where the role of treasuries is still important but less important and get, gets replaced by different components of portfolio construction. So part of the process here is, that we've going through is basically saying we're going to look at probabilities, apply those to portfolios as if that, portfolio, that scenario is the most likely one and then work out where we get to. Um, it's a really useful process if you've come to a position where you go, look, we've got some very different scenarios and we can't make up our mind. So rather than trying to say, look, we think the most likely one is X and we're going to do that, you basically say, look, if we believed each of the most scenarios was the most likely one, 
What will we do in that instance? Put that portfolio together, try and work out your probabilities as we have done, and then just average them out. And that's basically the process we've gone through in that exercise right at the start, which is to say, in previous years, how have we done? So what I'm going to take you through now is the way I've thought about these portfolios ahead of time. It, it, this is without the benefit of the panel discussions we've had today, but I will throw in the probabilities as they've come up. Uh, I think in the next few days, we will be basically including all the panel discussions in terms of overweights and underweights and then sending out to you all, this is basically what we've come up with as a dynamic asset allocation for this year, and that's the one we'll report on next year. So this is kind of the idea of how it works. Um, so first one, we looked at the bear case, the 70s redux. That's a really bearish outlook, as many of the panellists uh, mentioned. And so the, f the way I've run this is to say, the first decision you make is how much growth assets do you want to do? Now, the neutral on the right-hand side there is 60% in growth assets. So this is a traditional kind of 60-40 type portfolio. With the 60%, we're taking that one down to 30. So this is a very bearish scenario. We're going down to 30. Then within the asset classes, underneath growth and then defensive, basically say, well, what are we going to do? And the only one really, the only two probably ones in the growth side is in that scenario, we get a lot of inflation. As some of the panelists comment, it's bad for Australia, but I think it's worse for everyone else. We're probably getting reasonable commodity prices during this time. And so we've gone overweight Australian equities compared to the neutral weight um, allowing for the reduction. So if we'd reduced everything evenly, that 23% in Australian equities goes down to 11 or so. It's slightly above that at 22. And we don't reduce real assets by the full 50%. Instead of going from 10 to 5, it goes down to 7. But not a huge amount of change, because basically the, the fundamental driver there is we want less in growth assets. And then when we go to the defensive, uh, that scenario was pretty negative about bonds. Uh, it was pretty negative about ultimately getting us into sort of recessionary uh, conditions, so we didn't want to hold a lot of credit either. So you end up holding a whole lot of cash. So the idea of this is, if we had managed to convince ourselves that that is the most likely case at a, a fairly high degree of probability, that's probably what a portfolio looks like. Now, when we come out and adjust that to take into account panellists' discussions, that will move a little bit, but that's the next step. Then we look at the neutral, the muddle through case. Uh, in this particular example, just holding neutral allocation, it's neutral, it's neutral. You, I mean. It wasn't super positive. You could even say, look, we want to be a little bit underweight here. Uh, and then once again, you go through the asset classes. In this neutral case, it was going to be bad for China, or the, the, the muddle through, bad for China, bad for a lot of Asian markets, bad for commodity prices, Australia underweight. And you push the money elsewhere. In this uh, analysis, I really haven't taken valuations into account at all, because typically over one to two years, valuations don't matter that much, unless you get a major correction, and then your overvalued assets really get hammered, as we've seen in the last uh, six months or so. The other thing there is, in this muddle through scenario, interest rates come off, great for bonds. 
So we're overweight bonds in that scenario. Um, and then finally, we go to the bull case, the Goldilocks case. A lot of that is very much with uh, some 1998 in mind, where in particular, US market goes on a tear on the back of easing everywhere. Uh, again, reasonable for bonds. We're, we're basically underweight defensive assets. And so the bond weights come down, but not nearly as much as you would think when looking how much we're reducing defensive assets overall. So that's your basic scenario. And I think this is a really useful approach. At times, you're facing a lot of uncertainty. You then say, well, what are the probabilities we applied? Well, according to the vote, it came up as 24, 53, and 23. And you just have 24% of the best portfolio, 53% of the neutral and 23% of the bull portfolio, and you get to this. Not particularly exciting, but in this uh, approach, we are well and truly underweight Australian equities, overweight US equities. Overall, um, oh, so the other ones is we're a little bit underweight bonds. It's not an, it kind of an exciting one. Uh, the other thing that's kind of interesting here is we are slightly underweight uh, growth assets overall even though the vote came out pretty even. And the reason for that is the bearish case is a whole lot more bearish than the bullish case is bullish. And that sort of shifts you all a little bit that way. So that's the basic approach. Uh, just as to give you an indication, if the vote had came out as per the bottom right-hand corner, quite bullish, uh, this is what the change would be. You'd go from... Um, the 56% that we've come up with, up to 63% in growth assets and a bit more of a spread. And on the other hand, if we were much more bearish, you'd go from 56 down to 51% on growth assets. So I, I kind of offer that as that's, that's a first cut at it. We will go away and uh, revise it somewhat. But the most important thing about there is the idea that if you're facing really uncertain decisions, this is kind of a really useful process to go through. What would we do if we thought scenario A was the most likely, scenario B, scenario C? Think about the probabilities. And the weights you get out generally give you pretty sensible portfolios. You know, the defensive thing, I've actually maybe got a question for Sebastian. I think we could get confused there. Um, say illiquidity. I think um, buying illiquidity is like selling puts. Um, you're, you're, you're basically selling liquidity. And we're at a point in time when liquidity isn't worth anything to anyone. There are certain super funds who will tell you they will pay more for illiquidity. They will pay more for the thing that doesn't mark to market. Now, you know, I think it's like banking. 19 years out of 10, you make money. and the 20th, you lose money. You put all that together, and I wonder whether all of the defensive alternatives are always that defensive. Would you, would you agree with that, Sebastian? I really like your characterization of the illiquidity risk premium as selling an option. And it has negative skewness, meaning you're exposed to liquidity crises. Just a quick one, my father was a finance professor and he loved to use analogies with students. This is how he would describe a liquidity crisis in financial markets. He would say, imagine that the building's on fire. We're all gonna go for the door at the same time. 
that's understood. The difference in financial markets, and if you hold illiquid alternatives, is that in order to get out of the building, you need to find someone to take your place in the building. You need to find a buyer. That's the only way you get out, is you need to find a buyer. What does this do during real deep liquidity crises, which are admittedly very rare, but they create forced selling if you don't have enough of a buffer. And it has famously happened to really smart investors like the Harvard Endowment, for example. So I don't want to come across as anti-illiquid alternatives. In your question, you also said there's no premium anymore because everyone wants those assets and the premium has been priced away. I think philosophically, longer term, there should be a premium for giving up liquidity in your portfolio. I think illiquid asset classes have a role in the portfolio, but they're not the free lunch that I sometime, sometimes hear asset allocators in the industry describe it as. So I'll just say that. By the way, why, and this might just be semantics, but why are real assets increasing as inflation is decreasing from the 70s to the, to the Goldilocks? Ah, it's simply because we've, only, we, we've vastly reduced our exposure to growth assets, and you have to take them from somewhere. The reduction in the real assets isn't as big as the reduction in other assets. So we've now got 7 out of 30 in real assets, whereas before we had 10 out of 56. So its percentage of the growth has gone up, but basically, you've got to take the money from somewhere. And you'd rather take it out of liquid markets? I, I, the, the real assets could be listed or unlisted in this, in this uh, thing, and it's kind of, I just think they will do better than equity markets. Yes, when I looked at that, what struck me was the small allocation to alts, but after Tim clarified, it obviously spans within high yield, and I'll, I'll pick on private credit as an example. Now, I totally agree with Sebastian in that you have to watch, uh, I don't mind illiquid assets, but most of us are constrained in terms of how much we can have in our fund or on behalf of our client, so we have to be careful of that. We would like more, naturally, because certainly in this environment, let's face it, it's been a legitimate cheat, i.e. it's not marked to market, it's dampened vol volatility, and those with a greater allocation have done better. And as I say, legitimately, or those that could. So that's a good thing. Um, but you, you are constrained by limits and also fees. I haven't really heard a lot of people talk about fees. Let's face it, they are more expensive, so you have to look at that and look at it carefully. But also on the positive, it is a growing space. And using private credit as an example, post-GFC, the sector has just exploded. There are more opportunities. Yes, valuations had risen. And even in this recent crisis, private credit, money is still flowing into it. That and infrastructure, for some reason, they seem to have been the new safe havens, which is interesting. So I do think the opportunity set is there, but like with everything, you've got to do your homework. If, if I can throw one, one other thing in around this one. One of the things we've done, because everybody does it, we've called it growth and defensive. In a lot of ways, they're terrible terms. 
because we've got stuff in defensive that, you know, high yield, well, it might go down 20, 25% in a big downturn if, if, if it's liquid. And so is that defensive or not? It, it, it's kind of an awkward one. Uh, and then you have this. Can I answer that question? Sure. It's not. It's not awkward? High, high yield is not a defensive asset class. Okay. And, and people have different views on that, and I respect that. But it's grey is the kind of thing. It's not as risky as equities. Personally, I advise my clients to stick it up into the growth assets. And even that's uncomfortable. And so one of the things I think is a really useful exercise is to take something out of the Future Funds book, where they have this thing called EEE, the equity equivalent exposure. And they basically say, look, Aussie equities, 100% equities. International equities, 100% equities. When they get to something like high-yield debt, they might say, look, it's about a half as risky as equities, but it's a whole lot more risky than cash. We'll give it 0.5 or 0.3 or something. And you end up with an overall score that says, look, I've got effectively 60% in growth assets. Now, there's a level of nuance in that. that like, it's not the purpose of this exercise, but it's a really useful one because it now enables you to sit down with the client and say, this is way more risky than cash and way, more, way less risky than equities, and we think it's a good asset to own. Whereas this growth defensive thing forces you to put perhaps something that's a little bit risky and lower returning equities into the growth bucket. And they go, why are we putting that there? Wouldn't we rather be in equities? And it actually yeah. performs a useful role in the portfolio, and it's sometimes better to have that sort of characterisation. OK, so I'm going to pause that conversation there and say, OK, with that framework, let's now say, well, as um, implementers, if I can call you that, as folk who are in the role of then applying asset allocation in practice, what are the things that would stand out to you from what it is that the FOMC has said? So, for example, when it comes to equities, if the allocations are like are being proposed here, what does that mean in terms of your thinking about, for example, different styles or different factors that you might include? Would you think perhaps more significantly around value investing or growth investing, or are there other factors that you'd bring into play? Um, and we'll stick with equities for a moment and then perhaps move down to some of the other groupings, the other asset classes. But how about some comments in, in that space? David first. Yes, 100%. I mean, in the kind of the bear, um, the full bear case, I mean, Australian equities, if you, if you believe that, uh, you're probably not going to have small caps, you're probably not going to have mid and micro, and you're probably going to favour uh, value. Whereas if you go the other extreme to bull, um, you are going to have some small, mid, micro, and you're probably going to favour growth a bit in, in, well, international equities, not just US and world, a similar thing. You'll have, you'd probably unlikely have emerging markets in the bear case, uh, but you would in the bull, same with uh, global small cap. I, I think too, like, um, and kind of touching on the alternatives, although, I don't think many in the room regard kind of long short as alternative these days in equities, uh, which is good. Um, so in the bear case, you know, I think it, it would make sense to have some 
uh, long-short exposure in both your Aussie equities and global equities. Maybe not so much, well, probably not, in the, in the bull case. Thanks, David. Jonathan. Um, yeah, look, probably within equities, and, and look, I respect why you haven't taken the valuation into account, but that's actually the main thing I think you can twist this. And I think in, the, in all of the scenarios, but starting off with the uh, 70s one, the inflation one, and I, and I think we all kind of accept that somewhere between the 70s one and the inflation one, there's probably where we are. And this, in this case, your averaging thing actually works quite well. I completely get uh, Sebastian's point about why sometimes that doesn't work well, but in this case it does, because it takes you, it, it dilutes the, the extremeness. Um, and US equities are very uh, interest rate sensitive. They have been for the last five years. They are perfectly correlated with uh, real rates of interest. So when you follow that line, I'd say I agree with not owning US equities, but world ex-US, I would. And, and I know that we're not supposed to be talking about individual countries, but as part of world ex-US, uh, you've got, you know, you see what's been going on the last uh, few weeks. Uh, not great news in the UK. It hasn't budged. It's just stable, you know, because it's got valuation support. Uh, you can see that in emerging markets. Uh, you know, I, I think there are some serious warts in emerging markets, especially China. But you look at the underlying companies, you know, the, the multiple that Barbar's on now, you know, in South America, what you're buying, you put all that together, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff outside the US that actually, in an inflationary environment, will probably do okay, even over three years. Um, and, you know, we saw that at the beginning of this year. So I would, I would flex the... Uh, um, equity allocation outside of the US into everything else. That said, that's going to change. You know, a lot of the SaaS stuff, well, you know, it could go to the bottom. You look at something like an Adobe, still growing at 30%. Now it's on 20, high 20s rather than, you know, 50s. You know, that kind of quality, that's coming into the realm. So maybe it gets a little bit more resistant. So you can start sort of thinking about those things. Thank you, Jonathan. So up on the screen, you can see, and Lydia, if you can uh, prep your thoughts, and then I'll ask Sebastian to have a kind of overarching uh, response. It's the kind of chart you could perhaps usefully use as you're going through and thinking about, well, what are these scenarios going to mean for the, the, the uh, composite set, the probabilities mix, or what are the kind of scenarios I'd use for just bull or just bear or... or, or, or uh, uh, the neutral case. Lydia. I'll take it back a step and explain how we look at portfolio construction when it comes to sectors or equities. We treat it in the same way or the same framework to our asset allocation where it's very important to define the objectives and it's about the starting point being a neutral allocation and not having any unintended, unintended biases in the portfolio. Um, if you have a benchmark, or well, you must be wedded to a certain benchmark, again, being aware of unintended basis risk. So therefore, you want to have that neutral starting point where you diversify across styles. So equities, obviously, you've got, uh, let's talk about global equities, um, you will make sure, you may choose to have a good mix of concentrated versus core, or, or the different styles, but when you look at the totality, you want to make sure that it's representative across all regimes. So you start with that, and then obviously we do apply our tactical allocation. Um, uh, right now, uh, we will look at the value and growth, obviously a very prevalent theme. I'm of the camp that I do believe value is still 
the one versus growth at the moment. Um, geographic diversity, I'm, I believe in some diversification. I believe corporate America, perhaps I'm contrarian, I believe it's, it's in better shape than um, some of the scenarios presented. So I do believe there is merit in being in, in the American equities and US equities. So again, a more diversified stance there. And also um, be aware of your small cap versus large. Um, I do, obviously large, large caps have done well. Um, so I do believe that's also a place to have a more balanced okay. Thank you. Position. Tim, I said I was going to go to Sebastian, but I'll jump to you. Do you want to take 30 seconds and say what's your synthesis of the comments that have been made and then Sebastian? Um, I guess the question I was wanting to ask is, you've walked into the room and you've been told, here's our DAA, it's 56, da 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 da, -da. Forget about the scenarios, how should we invest them? Because it, it, it's kind of like you almost got to yeah. push the other stuff back and say, right, but you've given me that, what do I do now? Sebastian? Well, the thing in Australia is you have the franking credit, so you've got to have that with the home bias for the equities. So the portfolio looks fairly well balanced. If you're asking for my tactical views, I've already disclosed them on stage, that's right. so that's yeah. kind of a risky proposition for me to change my mind between the time I was there <laughs> to the time I sit here. I'm sure you can do it. <laughs> I could, if challenged. Look, it's pretty straightforward, and it's all been said, so I keep it short, but if you expect, expect more inflation, value should do better. There was a mention that Australian equities has a tactical overweight and a higher inflation environment higher than price then should do better given the link to commodities. Treasuries duration would do very, very poorly and those that have been short duration this year have benefited from being short duration. So on balance you have more cash and credit which is what the portfolio does. Let's, uh, let's mention the kind of more macro issue in some respects of uh, active versus passive strategies. David. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, that was one of the things I was going to say, and it was kind of a broader takeout from the conference itself, Graham, and that is the diversity of views. I think it's been a lot less consensus than it has in previous years, so that makes constructing portfolios difficult, right? Because there's no, there appears to be no sort of clear direction. So to me, that says you, you kind of need three things. You, you need diversification, um, you need alternatives, and with that, you need some non-directional. I think it's a big call to say, I'm going to have a long-only portfolio and it's going to do the job for me going forward. I, I, I don't think that's right. And you need active to answer your question. So I think it's uh, both, well, active underlying exposures and, and probably um, active asset allocation overlay as well. Um, you know, I think it's been, a, as, as we've heard many times, been a period where, you know, cheap beaters really done the job. That's not the case going forward, um, not at all. And you can see, like, I mean, I think for the most part, the economists have been really bearish. Most of the investors have been quite optimistic and actually enjoying the ability to, I guess, show their mettle um, for the first time in a while by, you know, it really being quite a, you know, sector security specific, you know, stock picking type environment. Thanks, David. Can, can I ask a question on that one? 
that has been a clear theme throughout. You need active management. And the sort of underlying assumption is it's easy to pick the good ones. Mm -hmm. It's obviously been extremely difficult for a long time. Do you think it's got easier, or is it still going to be hard and really requires some skills to get the good managers? Any? I, look, and, and sort of like to take that point, and more generally, uh, you know, in front of a whole lot of fundies, it's sort of asking for trouble to say it's a stock picker's market, because it always is um, in every place and every time. But I actually think there's, you know, that's, that's starting to build. Um, you know, you go to places like Japan and there's stuff which is just, you know, it, it's cheap, but it's not all in, all in the index. I just find it really difficult to get away from the fact that there are opportunities around the world. Uh, there are things, you know, with big dividends that seem to be growing on, you know, reasonable multiples that, you know, so I think it, you know, the devil's in the detail. So I think you, I think that does make it a stock picker's market or at least uh, a market where you have to be more specific. The big macro thing about active versus passive, I'd highly recommend reading the book uh, Trillions by Robin Bigglesworth. And he, he maps out the whole, you know, from, from DFA, Vanguard, the whole black, uh, iShares, the evolution of the industry. And it's, it's very supportive. This was a force for good. But then he talks in the last 50 pages about the excesses, and a lot of that really resonates. And I think if we are in the middle of a regime change, this stuff is caught in the middle of it. You've got concentration in areas that's due to momentum and piling up of money in certain places. And if that goes into reverse, which an interest rate change regime would, would suggest, then I think you'll see something different. But you know, then the point is, you have to be specific. What is it you're buying? It's not good enough to say, oh, just active. It is what it's specifically about that active thing that you can't replicate for a lower fee in an index. And I'd apply exactly the same methodology to alt, sort of repeating what I said before. But, you know, yes, the, there is a, a room for that, but you have to be very specific about what it is exactly. But to answer the question, easy or hard to pick active managers who are going to produce alpha? Easier, because... You think it's yeah, easier? Because, you know, the, yeah. the old saying, the rising tide raised all boats. So a lot of crap okay. was running. And so you saw... Active managers struggled. Long short managers struggled. Why? Because the shorting was rising. Same with market neutral. Yeah. Lydia, let me give you a chance for just uh, a quick comment, and then I'm going to do a, a round table with kind of 30 seconds at most uh, each. So, Lydia, quick comment. On active versus passive, uh, definitely been a good run for active, and I believe the opportunities are ripe. However, it's all about consistent alpha. So it's about picking the managers who can provide consistent alpha. And I do believe it varies by asset class, and I do believe there's a place, small place for passive in certain pockets. OK. So this is kind of wrapping up the whole of this set of four steps. Um, what's a takeout that you've had during the course of these four sessions, David, that you've sat back mostly and kind of observed and participated in, and now you're drawing it together. What's, what's a key takeout you'd have? Well, I think I already mentioned it. The key takeout for me is the diversity of views and the lack of predictability of the environment we're going into. Thank you. Jonathan? I'd say the main sort of takeout is this, it's all about inflation uh, and relating it to the scenarios. Yes, there was some um, overlap with, with Asia, but think about it this way. If, if Asia, China specifically, and um, uh, the, the West had an inflation um, problem, we would all have a huge problem with portfolios because interest rates, there was no way they're coming down. So they're both looking for an area in the world that can balance, and that, uh, that is maybe it. So, you know, yes, 
it looks um, you know, scary, but somewhere in the middle, we, we kind of need a bit of deflation in the system, and that might provide it, and that's our let-off hook. Okay, cool. Thank you. Lydia, quick comment, please. Uh, my take out, obviously a lot of uncertainty, so it's, I bring it back down to the fundamentals, uh, keeping an eye on your objectives and long-term, creating that res resilient portfolio, which is well-diversified and, and can be the rock in amongst the noise. There's Sebastian. a famous quote by John Maynard Keynes, in the long run, we are all dead. And I'm sure you've all heard it, but what is less known is what he wrote right after that sentence in his paper 100 years ago or so. Anyone knows what he wrote after that? He wrote, economists set themselves too easy and useless a task if all they can tell us during tempestuous seasons, which we're in right now, is that when the storm is gone, the ocean will be flat. My takeaway is that you as advisors, us as asset managers, we can't just say, in the long run, things will work out. It's our duty to help our clients, it's your duty to help your clients navigate this regime change, both from TAA and SAA perspectives. Timothy. Uh, I guess the, my biggest takeout, which is kind of not surprising, is that in these really uncertain times, you need a very disciplined, logical, thoughtful framework for making decisions. Otherwise, you're going to be the victim of the last bright, shiny idea that you've picked up, and they're all convincing, and you're going to be leaping all over the place. So get back, have a look at your frameworks for making decisions, and make sure they stack up and are logical.